Ever since Lent began, which seems like about six years ago, we've been listening to encounters that Jesus has with various people through the lens of how he understands himself as a physician, one who has come to heal. He, he healed many people physically, but all to serve a greater point that he had a power and authority to heal us in a deeper way, to heal us at the very core of our being in a spiritual way. And this morning, we're gonna listen for the last time in this series to an encounter that he has with someone along a road. A road maybe a lot different from this one, but a road nonetheless. A road along which someone named Saul was traveling. Saul, who later came to be known as Paul. And along that road, in that encounter with Jesus, we understand Saul to undergo what we know as a conversion, a change of heart and a change of mind. But what we're gonna learn is that conversion is more than just a change. It's a healing. And we wanna ask, in what sense is it a healing? So from the reading this morning, we're gonna learn three things about conversion. What it is, how it happens, and what its point is. So if you're able to stand, if only to focus your attention about what you're about to hear, I wonder if you might, as we listen to a reading from Acts chapter nine. Our central text for today can be found in Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 19. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him, so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, 
has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized and taking food, he was strengthened. This, this is, is the word, word of, of the Lord. Lord. Okay, I promise this first point is the longest of my three. So don't panic that when I'm done with it, you still think we're going to be here for another hour. I won't. The first time we ever hear of Saul, it's a chapter earlier. It's a guy named Stephen. You may be familiar with him. I take it on good authority that Stephen and Saul may have frequented the same synagogue, the same family of rabbinical teaching there in what is now the south of Turkey. But in chapter 7, Stephen is in Jerusalem, and Stephen has given perhaps the longest speech of his life. He's a new believer in Jesus, and he's there to tell Israel or retell Israel its story, this time explaining how Jesus is at the center of that story. And as he does so, he provokes a great deal of anger and animosity from the rabbinical folk that are listening there, so much so that they feel compelled to exert a certain righteous violence toward him. And by the end of it, Stephen is the first martyr of the Christian church. And the reason Saul comes on the scene is that those who are about to stone Stephen to death, they look to Saul for approval, and he gives it. And in the wake of that moment, Saul himself is inspired to take up the mantle of putting down the church in every way that he can by going to the authorities in the temple and getting a warrant, if you will, to go and round up the church and haul them in and throw away the key. He had given approval to Stephen's martyrdom and now the, the flames of his own zeal have been fanned to spearhead an effort to smother the church. Because at this point, the church is already undergoing a persecution in Jerusalem. And though Jesus had promised that they would bear witness to him in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria, they end up getting scattered out into the hinterlands, not through their own decision, but because they've been scattered as a consequence of persecution. And so Saul is on his way, on his way to Syria, where the church is beginning to take root, on his way to Damascus. And there he is met. He is met convincingly. And there what we find in Acts chapter 9 is his conversion. And there we begin to discover what conversion really is. And the first thing that we learn when we think about Paul, Saul's conversion or anyone else's conversion is that it is not a uniform experience, even though it comes to a uniform conclusion. See, his conversion was the most dramatic that you might have found anywhere in the New Testament. Bright light, um, big noise, uh, he's blinded in the eyes for a while, he hears an audible voice that only he hears himself, nobody else around him is even cognizant about what he hears, and in that moment he is convinced of something. He is dramatically presented with a reason to believe, and, and it has the case that, that there have been any number of people ever since his time that it's been a, a dramatic moment, a, a poignant moment, and even a terrifying moment in which they've come to be convinced of something about who Jesus is. Uh, Rabbi Zacharias is a name that you may know. He has been a Christian apologist for decades. He died this last Tuesday. We're all remembering the way in which we may have been impacted by him. But by his own story, he was raised in a nominal, nominal Anglican family. He thought all of that to be bunk. At the age of 17 though, under great distress, he tried to commit suicide. 
He took poison, but he survived, obviously. And there in the hospital, as he's recovering with his mother, a Christian worker, a chaplain there in the hospital, comes to meet him and offers him a Bible and encourages him to read from John chapter 14, where Jesus says to his disciples, because I live, you also will live. And in that moment, everything changes for Rabbi Zacharias. And from that moment forward, he seeks to live for the one whom he believed had rescued him from his own decision. So in that sense, there are moments in which people will turn in a very dramatic fashion. But that is not the experience of everyone. If you will just consider the disciples, how they themselves came to trust in who this Jesus is. At the beginning, they simply answer an invitation to follow him, to go where he goes. And on the basis of their intuition, on the basis of their sense that he's trustworthy, they go. And it's not until years later before even Peter looks at him and says, you're him, aren't you? You're the one. You're the one we've been waiting for. And that's what the disciples, it was not in the dramatic instant. It was more like a dawning. But in the same way that it happened dramatically to Saul, and in the other way that it happened less dramatically but still persuasively to the disciples, what we learn is this. Conversion is not a uniform experience, but it is a uniform conclusion. And that uniform conclusion, both for Paul and the disciples and everyone since then, is that Jesus is Lord. See, Paul, before this moment, has been convinced that Jesus and the way he has begun is the most um, outrageous, if not blasphemous voice that he might ever quell. And in time, he comes to be persuaded of the fact that Jesus is in fact the one Israel's been waiting for. The one who is worthy of respect and of worship. The one who is properly called Lord. The one whom we might listen to with all earnestness. The one whom we might bow before with all propriety. The one from whom we receive guidance and strength. That's what it means to call him Lord, to believe that he is Lord. That's just the number of ways in which you express that belief in his Lordship. But to be converted is not only to believe that Jesus is in some way in charge, that he is foremost, that he is worthy of being known as highest. It also means something else. And Paul gets that. Because in time, Paul begins to discover what it means for Jesus to be Lord, not merely that he's high and lifted up, but that as Lord, he has come to do what only he can do, that he's come to heal as only he can heal. So what's he come to heal us of? Much like this rain is out to heal our land, and boy, is it an effective healer. As I've said on a number of occasions in recent months, the one thing that Jesus has come most to heal us of is our estrangement from God. He's come to do that because only he can. We can't do that. We can't do what doctors do. He, as the physician, has come to heal us of what is broken between us and himself, between us and his Father and the Holy Spirit. That's what he's come to heal in us first. Rabbi Zacharias, last fall, while he was still ailing, did an interview with uh, the Orthodox Jew named Ben Shapiro. And in the interview, which you can see, there's a link to it in our ministry resources page on the sermon this week, Ben Shapiro asked him straight up, what's the primary difference between Christianity and Judaism? And at first, Ravi Zacharias says, there's one thing that they hold in lockstep, that they hold absolutely and unequivocally in common, 
is that both Jews and Christians aspire to communion with God. It's their greatest desire. It's their greatest hope. It's their greatest longing. But where Christianity parts company from Judaism is that from Rabbi Zacharias' point of view, Jesus comes to complete a story that the law and the prophets began but did not finish and did not resolve. The law expresses the heart of God. The law expresses what it means to live properly before God. But when you stare at the law long enough and you consider your own heart in contrast to it, you, you, it is revealed to you just how far your heart is from the nature of what that law calls for. But Jesus himself is the one who is the perfect embodiment of that law. And he is the one who has come to cover all of our estrangement from the one who gave us that law. He's come to cover us in all of our sin and corruption and guilt as a consequence of breaking that law. Jesus has come to fulfill the storyline that the law and the prophets began. He's the one that they were waiting for. He's come to heal us of that regret. He's come to heal us of the guilt that lingers perhaps beneath the surface in ways we don't ever quite realize or are cognizant of. But he's also come to heal us of something else. He's not only come to heal us of our guilt, he's come to heal us of a something, an impulse within us. An impulse that lingers from as long as we can remember and even before we can remember. See, it is one thing to believe that in him, because of his lordship, you are forgiven. But it is another thing completely to understand a deep kind of inner rest, a deep sort of sense of the deepest welcome that you might know a deepest kind of acceptance that is imaginable. And in a biblical language, in a biblical framework, you might think of acceptance as a word that we hear often branded about called righteousness. To be righteous before God is to have His favor. It is to be delighted in by Him. And therefore, those who are righteous before Him are those who have His acceptance. And for a very long while, Paul himself thought it would be according to his own efforts, his own scrupulosity, his own attention to detail and the holiness of God that would at some point make a case for his own righteousness before him. That he would merit the, the pleasure of God, the favor of God, by just how fastidious he was in listening to and obeying the law. But it is something that he comes to discover in realizing the Lordship of Jesus that what he thought he could do, he cannot. And that only by faith in the one who is Lord can he ever have any hope of having that acceptance. And so you hear him say in his letter that he wrote to the church at Philippi in chapter 3, he says this, Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. When I was growing up, I was the president of my choir in high school. Loved doing that. Love to sing, love to lead others in song. But for the longest time, I would ask them to pursue their excellence, and I would get really mad when they weren't pursuing their excellence. And I would come up with any, any number of strategies to motivate them. And, and sometimes I'd storm out of uh, rehearsals thinking that that was the most important thing, and they just weren't cutting it. And then when Jesus becomes real to me in college, and I had a little time to reflect, I came to realize that most of what animated my life 
inquire in that moment had nothing to do with God and had everything to do with me. I was the center of my own attention. I was my own Lord. I thought I had the means by which I might feel okay. Paul expands on that in a far more profound way. But it is Paul who discovers that his best efforts come to naught and only by faith in Christ might he have that story resolved. All of that sounds wonderful. All of that acceptance, that freedom. We all seek it in a number of ways and we properly do so. We can find all kinds of acceptance in a friend or in a spouse or in a vocation or in a set of accomplishments. And all those things are good, but every one of those things is frail and fragile. And there is a deep kind of acceptance that comes from God that cannot be taken away that those other things can. And therefore, in our impulses, Along the way, you and I, we try to find the, there's this impulse we feel to prove something, to prove that we matter, to prove that we are meaningful, to prove that we're okay. And Paul is out to tell us that our deepest source and word of welcome comes through faith in the one who welcomes us in himself. Now, all that is way out there. So let me see if I can bring it all down to the the bottom shelf here with a little help from Wes Anderson. A couple years ago, I shared with you this clip from his stop-motion film called The Fantastic Mr. Fox. Uh, you may remember it's a, it's, a, it's a film version of the Roald Dahl short story. Um, Fox, or he's known as Foxy by his wife, he is a, has a thrill for danger. He loves to tempt fate. He loves to tempt danger. He loves to, to mix it up. And, and here in the film, he, he likes to, to tempt danger with these three farmers that he likes to pilfer their goods from to provide for him and his family. And he loves doing that. But in the wake of his thrill, of his excitement with uh, living in danger and provoking people's anger and things like that, he's now put his family, his friends, and his own life in jeopardy. And here in this moment, a really candid moment between his wife and himself, he kind of goes beneath the surface about what is really animating his desire to tempt danger. Badger's right. These farmers aren't going to quit until they catch me. I shouldn't have lied to your face. I shouldn't have fallen off the wagon and started secretly stealing chickens on the sly. I shouldn't have pushed these farmers so far and tried to embarrass them and cuss with their heads. I enjoyed it, but I shouldn't have done it. And now there's only one way out. Maybe if I hand myself over and let them kill me, stuff me, and hang me over their mantelpiece. You'll do no such thing. Darling, maybe they'll let everyone else live. Oh, why'd you have to get us into this, Foxy? I don't know, but I have a possible theory. I think I have this thing where I need everybody to think I'm the greatest, the quote-unquote fantastic Mr. Fox. And if they aren't completely knocked out and dazzled and kind of intimidated by me, then I don't feel good about myself. Foxes traditionally like to court danger, hunt prey, and outsmart predators, and that's what I'm actually good at. I think at the end of the day, I'm just... I know. We're wild animals. See, it is one thing to tempt danger uh, for the sake of the benefit of others. It is understandable while you might risk yourself in order to protect that which is good and that which is valuable. But it is quite another thing to tempt danger so that you will feel okay about yourself, so that you will become the hero of your own story. Because when you go there, you put all sorts of things at risk. And that is a recipe for potential disaster, if not for yourself but for any number of people that you love. And Foxy is coming to that realization. 
And what is true of him is perhaps true of us all. We are all at some point in our lives feeling like we are out to prove something. And Jesus has come to free us from that, to heal us from that impulse to try to prove something because he is out to secure for us what we cannot secure for ourselves. That's the healing that comes with conversion. And it's not only the impulse to prove something that he heals us from. He also is out to heal us by our conversion from the impulse to pretend. I, uh, I shared this week with several of you um, a, a cartoon from The New Yorker that somebody passed along to me. It's the picture of a man in a room. Uh, clearly he's all dressed up and he's on a Zoom call and he is illumined by his laptop and everything that is within the frame that everybody on his Zoom call can see is all put together and nice. But we have the vantage point of seeing the entirety of his room and in its darkness it is disheveled, it is unkempt and it is a window into that man's life. And therefore as you see there in the cartoon is the tagline, we are all pretending. You and I, our natural inclination, that which we show, we curate. That which we allow people to see, we put the finest foot forward and put all the touches on it and yet everything in the background and all sorts of things that are deeply true of us on the inside is something that we would dare not let the world see, not let the see the light of day, much less the light of a Zoom call. And though that's an understandable inclination, to allow that inclination to go long is to ask yourself for great peril. Jesus is the one who has come to free us from the impulse to pretend, the impulse to curate. He is the one who has come to see our whole room, metaphorically speaking, and to love us anyway. And to invite us to follow him, to give us life. Conversion is about being healed from our estrangement from God. It's about being healed from our impulse to prove. It's about being healed from our impulse to pretend. And all of that is the fork the mark of conversion. That's what it is. How does it happen? How does it happen? If there's anything that's clear in this whole vivid, bizarre moment is that Paul, then Saul, was not out to seek what he got. He's on this, in his mind, a righteous mission to snuff out the most blasphemous voices that he knows of within the Jewish world. And then he is met by a divine two-by-four and in that moment, we discover that he did not seek it. And therefore, in the same way that we might have put it in the previous point, not all conversions unfold in the same way. They don't have all the same storyline, but they all have the same reason that occasions it. In that moment, Paul did not deserve what he got. And yet he is met with grace. He's met with kindness. He's met with hope. He's met with respect. He's met with love. The reason I say that that storyline does not unfold for everyone in the same way, here's the deal. Uh, not everyone who is converted is on a bloodthirsty crusade to snuff out other voices. Not everybody who's ever converted to believe in the Lordship of Jesus was out to explicitly and consciously oppose the will of God. But one thing is true of everyone who was converted. It wasn't because they were nice. It wasn't because they had impressed God with who they were. It wasn't because there was anything in their character that prompted God to do for them what he did. Conversion is of God, it's by God, it's from God, it's for God, but it has nothing to do with what is in us except our own need. 
The only thing we bring to the table when it comes to our conversion is our need for it. Paul, then Saul, didn't deserve it, and none of us do. And what we come to learn in a moment like that, that his conversion is entirely of grace. And you, you, know, you know who also believed that Paul or Saul didn't deserve what he was getting? It was Ananias. You might say there is a second conversion in this whole passage, and it's Ananias. He already believes in Jesus to be Lord. But in that moment, when the Lord says to him, go, go, there's somebody I've got for you to see. There's a guy named Saul. He's waiting for you in this house on Straight Street. Go and tell him that I've got something for him to do. And Ananias in that moment says, are you sure? You, you know what he's up to do. You know what he's been doing. You know what he's out to do, right? And God says, go. In that moment, you might say, in a certain way of speaking, that Ananias is being converted to a belief that God is powerful enough to oppose even the one that is most violently opposed to him. And that at the same moment, God is also both gracious enough to forgive one who is so violently opposed to his will in that moment. And so for both Saul and Ananias, there's something of a conversion to a belief that at the bottom of every conversion there is one thing, and that one thing is grace. There's no other explanation for it. And that's good news. You can't impress him. Anna Marie Cox, uh, she writes for several publications. Um, about five or six years ago, uh, she becomes a Christian and she becomes very outspoken about it. And while I don't go everywhere she goes on some things, on this one thing I couldn't be more in agreement with. When she explains what she knows about Jesus, she put it this way. Before I found God, I had an unconsciously manufactured higher power. I spent a lifetime trying to earn extra credit from some imaginary teacher, grade grubbing under the delusion that my continuing mistakes, missed assignments, cheating, other nameless sins were constantly held against me. And I knew in my heart that failure was inevitable. What Christ teaches me if I let myself be taught is that there's only one kind of judgment that matters. I'm saved not because of who I am or what I've done or didn't do, but simply because I've accepted the infinite grace that was always offered to me. She understands at the bottom of this conversion is nothing less than grace. And it's by his will and by his persuasion that we come to hear it, to acknowledge it, to believe it, and to receive it. That's the nature of this conversion to free us, to heal us from all those things, from our own estrangement, from our own impulse to prove, from our own impulse to pretend, from our own impulse to think that we must make our best way forward and get our best life now. At which point we have to ask one last question. Is it all about us? Is, this, is conversion all for just our good? Because so far it sure sounds like it's all about bringing us healing. And though it is, the simple answer to that question is no. And the reason we know that is from what the Lord says to Ananias about Saul. He says, go, for he will be my chosen instrument to bring, to, to bear my name to Gentiles and kings and the house of Israel, and I will show him how much he will suffer for my name's sake. The great irony of this moment is that Saul, who is out to inflict suffering upon the church, will in time be the one to experience suffering for the sake of the church. But what we learn in that moment is that conversion has a point. And it's not ultimately directed upon us. 
It's on something even grander through us. The point of conversion is that we might become an instrument in His hand. That He converts us that He might commission us. That He saves us that He might send us. That's what He does with Saul until his name becomes Paul and then Paul is on his way and surely that is what it means to be his. Before Jesus ever spoke to any of his disciples about being a ransom for many, before he ever spoke about dying and rising again after three days, before he ever spoke about being suffering, he invited them to follow him and to give them life. But that life is learned. The life he means to give us, the life in which we learn what it means to follow him, that is a life that rests squarely on the belief that we are His by His work alone. And though we should succeed or fail at that life, none of that determines whether His love is real or steadfast. But in that love, we discover what it means to live. And that life is learned. And that life is learned by listening. It's learned in community. It's learned by a lot of trial and error, what we might call repentance. But it is learned. And it's always learned on the basis of one belief, that we are His and we've become His on the basis of grace alone, through faith alone, through Christ alone. That is what we've been converted to, nothing less, nothing more. C.S. Lewis put it this starkly about the way you might think of Christianity. He put it this way, he said this, Christianity, if false, is of no importance, and if true, of infinite importance, the one thing it cannot be is moderately important. To think of conversion, what it's meant to teach us, what it's meant to heal in us, what it's meant to heal us for, you can't simply think of it as a moderately important idea, a moderately important change. And that's why I might say to you who are listening, if Jesus is in fact not one that you could credibly or with conviction call Lord, then might you imagine just for a moment, that perhaps this word is his word of persuasion to you. To be of the belief that he in fact is Lord and he means to heal all those things that are true of us, whether we know of them or not, or will admit them or not. But if it is true of you that you already think of him as Lord, then I think this passage is out to tell us two things. That we should give thanks sometime this day. Give thanks for what he's done because you and I had nothing to do with it except to contribute our need for it. And then as you give thanks, know this. This one idea, this solemn truth is meant to be a source of rest. In all the midst of our unrest in these days, it is meant to be a source of rest. It's meant to be a source of refuge in all the ways in which this world is encroaching upon us and all this season is making us anxious, these ideas are meant to be a refuge. They're also meant to be what provokes our repentance, to believe that it is proper for us to seek His will, not quench His spirit, and seek forgiveness, but to know always that every confession is met with the promise of His forgiveness if we're in Him. And in all those things, the rest we take, the refuge we find, the repentance we engage in, it is meant all to fuel our resolve to be an instrument in His hand. Jesus comes to us as a physician, 
And in living and dying and rising, he makes the ultimate house call. And in his converting us to his lordship, he's come to heal. May he heal in us what we need from him. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.